But do you realize you have given your whole life over to someone you've never seen? It's been a while since someone asked me that question. It's a good question. But I think it reveals this assumption that people have about Christians, especially Christians who decide to become pastors. That we don't doubt. That we don't struggle. That there aren't mornings when I wake up and realize my whole life has been given to someone that I've never seen. That I don't have coffee with Jesus every morning when I get up. That that reality has never been lost on me. That there are mornings that I wake up and wonder, what if I'm wrong? That this world is an easy place to be a skeptic, isn't it? That the evil in this world, the suffering, the fact that I do some of the same things wrong now as a 32-year-old, or almost 32-year-old, as, as I did as a 15-year-old, or death itself surrounds us. This is an easy place to be a skeptic. Which is I, for one at least, can understand why many people look at the world around us and decide you don't need God to find meaning in life. That they look around the world and, and either see the fact that God just can't exist. I mean, with all around us, how could there be a good, loving God that's, that's there? Or maybe for you it's more, God's just not directly involved in your life on a daily basis. Maybe you have a vague belief in God, but you don't really pray. You don't, don't really have a community of people around you that believe. You don't have a church to call home. God's not a daily reality that's lived out in your life. And maybe you hope God will be there when you need him, but most days you don't need him. Life's good. That the thought that you'd give your life to someone you've never seen seems foolish. And it's not like God's interrupting your morning coffee to talk. That many people find rich meaning in life without God. And we all long for meaning, don't we, right? To, to love and to be loved, to contribute, to be valued, to have a life of consequence. We all long for that. And so I want to raise the question just this morning. Can you have a life of meaning without God? And to that I would say yes, no. But you don't need God to, to love, to make a difference, to have a rich, meaningful life. You can love, you can give, you can laugh, you can have a good life without needing God to explain any of it. Can you have meaning in life without God? Yes, but no. And the no is what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. The text we just heard read. This ancient letter written by a Christian whose name was Paul, who lived in the same world that you and I live in. And what Paul is saying is, is whether you, you just don't believe in God altogether, or whether God's just not a part of your daily reality, if that's your story, if that's your life, sure you can find meaning in life, but it's, it's tenuous. You're walking in tightrope. And you have to keep perfect balance in this life for that life to have meaning. But Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, at some points, the rope will break. Or you'll lose balance and fall. That Paul sees with clarity the many things that threaten to take my meaning and my joy and my value in life. Whether I'm a Christian or not, the things that threaten the relationships I take most value in, the things that threaten what I most take joy in. What Paul is saying is that apart from God, meaning in life is tenuous. You can have it, but it's, 
It's a tightrope. And above all, I think what he's saying is that my failures, my fears, eventually my own death will take everything I gave meaning in life to. And to all of that, to all of us, whether you follow Jesus or you don't, Paul would say one thing to us on this Easter morning, and that is Jesus does live. And because he lives, so can I. And so can you. And life, not just in heaven, right? Paul's not just saying in this passage, I don't think, hey, someday when you die, you can have a good life in the next life. No, he's saying right now to really live, to really have the richest type of meaning you could have in life. It only comes if Jesus really broke out of that tomb 2,000 years ago. That we all need a meaning in life that's not tenuous, that can give a deep explanation both to the greatest pains and fears we face in life, but also our greatest joys. To all of us, Paul says, Jesus is alive. Because he lives, so can you. So can I. Because my death is not the end. My fears are not in charge. And my failures don't have the last word. Paul starts with his gospel message by saying, your death isn't the end. And I'll never forget the first funeral that I really attended. I mean, I'm sure I'd been to other funerals in the past, but the first funeral I was truly present at. It was my my grandpa Spanberg, the first person who was actually close to me that that died. I was 20 years old, and I I went to the funeral, and it was the first experience I ever had just just weeping. And me, by nature, I'm not a crier. Everyone told me at, at, at my wedding that I would cry, and I disappointed all of them. Right, people told me I'd cry at the, the, the birth of my first child. I didn't. I'm not a crier. And yet that moment really, it shook me because I'm not a crier. That moment shook me because there was a pain and a longing I felt there I couldn't explain. It just led me to weeping. Why? I mean, my grandpa Spanberg lived a rich, full life. He outlived the, the average life expectancy. Yet at that moment there was a longing and a pain I felt I'd never felt before. But what do you do with those feelings when you bury someone that you love? And it's not the last time I felt that way. That as a pastor, funerals are a common part of my job. And you'd think the more time I spend around death or funerals, the more I'd get used to it, right? I mean, we, we humans, we've been dying a long time. And yet it doesn't. To me, pain, the pain of death has only gotten worse since the age of 20. The sting I feel in that, that moment has only gotten worse. And I think Leo Tolstoy, who is a Russian novelist and author, gets at why I feel that way. He asks a question that I don't think any of us can get out of here without wrestling through or asking ourselves. Here's what he writes. This is my question that that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my life? Why should I love? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is there any meaning in my life that my death won't take from me? That why should I love? Why wish for anything if my death just takes it all? 
If death ends everything that I give my life to, my friends, my, my family, my wife and kids, my, my church community, my causes, the things I believe in, if death takes it all from me, what's the point? But for example, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you know the names of your great-grandparents, what they did for a living? Right, that's how quickly many of you might be forgotten. That your kids, grandkids, won't know who you are or what you did. That my kids' grandchildren won't know my name, most likely. And Paul speaks to the br- brutal reality of all of this in 1 Corinthians 15, the finality of death, verses 14 through 18 in 1 Corinthians 15. Sober words that to me at least show Paul had an honest approach to what it means that either whether Christ was raised or whether he wasn't. An honesty I can appreciate. Here's what he says. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We were even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Right? Those who have died, they're gone. That's what Paul says. That Paul is saying if Christ has not been raised, Tolstoy's question gets answered with a brutal honesty. Is there any meaning in life my, my death won't take from me? Paul says if Jesus has not been raised, then no. There's no ultimate meaning to your life that will carry beyond your death. Maybe you hear that and, and you say, Christians say this sort of thing all the time, and we do, right? That what I'm not saying, I genuinely mean you can have a rich life without God. And so maybe you're hearing all this and you say, but Tim, there's one life, there's still reasons to live, love is worth living for, you can make a good contribution, even if, if there's no eternity, that doesn't really ultimately change how you should live in the here and the now. And there's some truth to that. I don't doubt that. Of course it's better to love than to hate. But I, for one, need a better explanation. It's not that I think you you need God to explain all of life. It just doesn't explain enough for me. Not nearly enough. That's why I've given my life over to someone I've never seen. That Jesus better explains this longing I feel at death than anyone else, than anything else. Because the Christian story, it's both simple and outrageous. Right, that this guy lived 2,000 years ago. He died. He was crucified publicly in front of an entire city. He was put in a tomb. And three days later, he came out alive. My guess is many of us hear that and it doesn't hit us with the shock or the outrage that it should. That we've heard the story too much. It's just background noise. To us. And my guess is many of us heard Andrew read verses 1 through 11, and we weren't moved, we weren't, we weren't shocked, because we've heard it too many times. And yet, these verses make it clear, there was this large group of people who during the first century were absolutely convinced Jesus rose from the dead. And I don't know about you, I've never yet been at a funeral where someone who is dead came back to life. Never seen that. And what Paul is saying, I think, here is that, listen, there are all kinds of people who saw Jesus. And what's important, I think even more than that, is this letter Paul wrote was within 20 to 30 years after Jesus died and claims to have been resurrected. So we're not talking like hundreds of years after the fact. Paul is saying there are people that still live that saw him. Go see them. And more than that, verses 3 through 5 
or an ancient creed, even Christian scholars or even scholars who deny the resurrection is true, believe verses 3 through 5 was a creed written from within a few years after Jesus' death that became popular within the church. Which means just a few years after Jesus was publicly crucified and put in a tomb, there were thousands of people saying, no, he didn't stay dead, he's alive. And Paul says even a few hundred people who, who were saying, I saw him alive. Now, I know many of us, including myself even some days, have the assumption that religious people are just real, we're really easily duped, right? Like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, right? It's why people come up to me and ask me, do you realize you've, never given, your li- you've given your life to someone you've never seen? Yes, I've thought of that, actually. Right? We think religious people are just so easily duped, we're naive, and yet that doesn't work with this, this chapter. Because Paul mentions two people, and I would say there's a lot more we could say here, but Paul mentions two people in particular who would have been incredibly hardened skeptics who had no reason to believe the Jesus story and yet did. The first one being James who Paul mentions in verse 7. James there is the brother of Jesus. And when Jesus was alive James didn't follow Jesus and if you've ever read through the gospels you see moments of tension between Jesus and his brothers who didn't believe his claims and surely none of us have ever had siblings who we thought thought a little bit too highly of themselves maybe had messianic complexes Right? And we didn't believe they were quite as good as they thought they were. And yet, James went from that place to worshiping his own brother as Messiah and God. What happened? Let me ask you, what would have to happen for you to worship your brother as God? Right, I don't have a brother, but I have a sister, and I'm, I'm really confident that even if she watched me die... And be buried and come out of the grave three, years, three days later. That would still not be enough for her to worship me as God. Right? She'd just look at me and remember the time I fell off my bunk bed and landed face first on the ground. Right? I, don't, I don't think you're God. Right? You don't do that. And yet, and yet, James worshipped his own brother as, as Messiah and God. This isn't a naive person. This is someone who saw every day of Jesus' life grow up. He saw him crucified and died and be buried. And then he became a church leader and went around telling everyone who would listen, my brother is God, he's the Messiah, he rose from the dead. But it's not just James, it's also Paul who would have been a hardened skeptic. And Paul says of himself in verse 9 that that I, the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. At the first moment we meet Paul in the Bible is in Acts when he's standing over the assassination, the murder of a Christian named Stephen. And Paul participated in that by holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen. And Paul went from a man hell-bent on persecuting the church and arresting and killing Christians to becoming a pastor who wrote letters to churches who were giving him a really hard time and making his life really difficult. As a, as a Christian who suffered for his own faith, who was beaten countless times, who eventually was beheaded, all while, while saying, I saw Jesus alive. He rose from the dead. Now, this isn't Ned Flanders. This isn't some naive person. These are two men who had no reason to believe in Jesus, and yet they did. Two of the most hardened skeptics. Because the story of the resurrection, it's, it's an outrageous claim. Right? It's, it's different than any other religion. It's not just us saying, hey, Jesus loves you and, and wants you to be nice. You should agree with that. That's not what we're saying. We're saying Jesus actually died, was buried, and he's still alive. 
There's no other claim like that. There's no other religion that says anything close like to that because it's, 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 it's a claim so outrageous you have to investigate at least one way or the other. Right, that if you got a letter from the IRS today saying you owed $100,000 in back taxes from last year, even if you didn't make $100,000, you still have to check that claim out. Right, or if you get a letter from a lawyer saying your Uncle Jim left you $2 million and you don't have an Uncle Jim, you're going to find out and you're going to hope that you do have an Uncle Jim, right? You're going to investigate that claim. This is, in other words, listen, Paul's not just saying Christianity makes you really nice. That's not an outrageous claim. Everyone says that. No, Paul's saying there's a man, his name was Jesus. He, he, he was crucified. He was put in a tomb and he came out three days later. And either it didn't happen or it did. In either way, it's one of the most outrageous things people have said ever. And the church has been saying it for 2,000 years. But it's not just that you have to investigate this claim because it's so outrageous. It's because if it's true, it gives more meaning to your life now than without it. Though what is it that, that you give your meaning in life to? What gets you up in the morning? What brings you the most joy? Because we all want to live lives of consequence. To love and to be loved. To make a difference. To contribute. To be good workers at whatever it is we do in life. And if you stop and you listen, I would, I would say those things are better explained by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection than just saying, at your death, all of those things are gone forever. I think Jesus' life, death, and resurrection better explains why I find this life so meaningful and so rich and so good. It's because this life wasn't meant to end. That all of those things you give your life to, that you find meaning to, they're pointing beyond your death. They're pointing beyond themselves. That whether you believe in God or not, those things you take joy in, those things you find so rich, the, re- the things that give you the, the greatest longings in your heart and life, they're there for a reason. And all of us live like our lives do matter, like our lives do have consequence. That we don't, none of us think our, our lives are just rearranging deck, deck, or deck chairs on the, the Titanic, right? That the boat is just sinking, there's nothing we can do. It doesn't matter. That no one will care or remember what we did or what we said long after the boat sinks. None of us live like that, right? Why? It's why I wept at my grandfather's funeral. It's a longing for another place. A place where death doesn't snuff out everything I love and everything I do and everything I give my life to. There's a reason all of us live like this boat isn't sinking. Because maybe it's not. Maybe your death isn't the end. Maybe God better explains why you find such rich meaning and joy and goodness in your life than whatever explanation you're giving right now. That Paul's saying he lives. So can you. So can I. Our death is not the end. But it's not just that. It's not just our death is not the end. It's also our fears. My fears are not in charge. That was, I was recently talking with a friend of mine. Our both, both our lives were going really well. We were both pointing that out. Life is great. Job's going well. Family's great. Life's good. And then he voiced a question that I had in the back of my head, but he was, just wanted to ruin our lunch or throw negativity in or something. I don't know. But he just throws out, you know, I just think some days, when's it all going to fall apart? When's it all going to end? Like, thanks. That's encouraging. 
But, but here's the reality. Why our nervous laughter covered over that question. It all is going to end. And maybe that's a long time from now for me. I pray it is for you. I pray it is a long time out in the future. But everything we give our lives to now that's good, it all has a shelf life. It all has an end date. And listen, I really truly believe, I'm not just being facetious. I really believe you don't need God to have a good, rich, full life of love and kindness to those around you. Sitting across that, that table from my friend, neither one of us needed God to explain why life was so good. But if you do that, you're exposed. If you live God without a daily reality in your life, you're exposed to the things that you fear. And so let me ask, what is it that you fear? Losing a job, sickness in your family, losing a a relationship that means so much to you, or death itself. What is it that you fear? And there's a lot of ways you and I try and cover up, ignore, suppress those fears. Right? For probably for most of us, we just don't think about it. Or we just try not to think about it. We know it's coming, but let's not think about it until it comes. Right? Especially not on Easter. Maybe some of you are annoyed at me right now a little bit. Like, why are you probing my fears on Easter? Happy Easter. Jesus is risen. Easter eggs, bunnies. Come on. We hide it. We suppress it. Or maybe for others of us, right? we do it verse 32. What Paul says the other option is for some of us in verse 32. Right, what do I gain humanly if speaking, what what do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Right, avoid suffering. Right, and we do this in our our culture, right? We're so material blessed, it's easier for us to do it than any other culture in the world. That we can medicate ourselves with material goods, with vacations, Right, with, with sex, with alcohol, with food, with whatever we can spend and buy to hide our fears and the inevitable reality that someday they're going to break through and get to us. But what is it that you fear? Because whatever it is that you fear, your meaning in life, whatever gives you meaning in life, it has to do two things with your fear or else they'll, they'll, they'll get to you. And the one, whatever gives you meaning in life, it has to let you affirm your fears but also give you confidence. Your fears have been overcome. By the one, anything that gives you meaning in life, it should be able to look your fears straight on in the face. That when I was 24, I became the pastor, the main teaching pastor of a church, um, which was about as bad of an idea as it sounds. Right? And I had youthful confidence. And if you had asked me at that point, Tim, what does Christianity say to fears? I would say Christianity tells you, you have nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear. And one of the great parts of, of being a pastor is you get in on, on people's best day of their life. right? You get to be there next to the groom as the bride comes down the aisle. You get to be there when a child is born. You get to, to, to baptize kids. into the. I mean, there's just so many cool. You get to be in people's best days of their life. They invite you in. But being a pastor also means you, you, you get to, to be a part of the worst days. You get to be there when the diagnosis comes in. You get to be there sometimes at the moment a child learns his parents are, are getting a divorce. You get to be there when the family member dies and you are surrounded by the grief that fills that family. And all those moments began just to wear me out. It gave me a sense that I don't, I don't see the world right. 
The Christianity is not saying there's nothing to fear in this world. The Christianity doesn't treat this world like many of us do with our head in the sand, trying to ignore the inevitability that's coming that everything we fear eventually will get to us. The Christianity, it's painstakingly honest. It's what Paul's doing here in 1 Corinthians 15 when he reminds us of the story of Jesus. That Jesus didn't just come and be welcomed and be celebrated. He entered a world full of enemies, full of authorities and powers that sought to destroy him. And that's where Paul goes in verse 24. So then comes the end. When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And those words aren't the words we use to describe our, our fears, right? Rules, authorities, powers, enemies. And yeah, that's what Paul's talking about. This world that's out of control that's filled with things we legitimately fear, the things that one day will break through and get to us. And the only way you can have meaning in life, true meaning that gets, that gets past your death, that gets past your fears, is if you have a meaning that can allow you to open your eyes full and, and stare your fears head on, to not hide or suppress them. And psychologists, they, they say the same thing that David Feldman, a psychologist, recently wrote a book called Super Survivors. And his point, one of the main points, is that the only way trauma survivors or people who are in, in great suffering can get through those things is if they have a, a, what he calls a grounded hope. That it has to be grounded in reality, right? It has to be realistic. That, that what he, one of the things he says is positive thinking, silver linings, is not helpful to people, right? Don't worry, be happy is the worst thing you could say to someone who truly has undergone trauma or suffering, it doesn't work. That you have to be grounded. You have to be realistic. You have to affirm your fears to find meaning and to get through. And Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, Christianity is a grounded hope. It's realistic. There's rulers, there's authorities, there's powers, there's enemies all around. That's what Jesus came. They read the book of Psalms, read the book of Job, read any book in the Bible, and you'll find all over the place there's fears, there's enemies, it's the real world. Which, of course, is ultimately true in the story of Jesus, who comes, and his life culminates in a moment when he's surrounded by his enemies, by those who mock him, by those who spit on him, by those who gamble as, as his clothes are, are removed and he's stripped naked. Jesus' own life is a reminder this is a, there are real things to fear in this life, in this world. But it's also saying Jesus can look at every one of us and say with credibility, I know what you fear. But he doesn't just say that. He can't just enter into our, our lives and say, I know what you fear. I've been there. He can also say, and I've overcome everything that you fear. That Paul is saying Jesus has defeated all of our fears. He is defeating all of our fears. And there's a day coming when every last thing that you and I fear in this world, in this life, will be gone forever. Jesus has defeated it all already in one sentence on the cross. And he's finishing it off this moment as we speak. And obviously you don't, you don't need to believe in God to have courage in the face of your fears. Courage is most definitely not a trait limited to only Christians. But there's also brutal reality to face 
here that if Jesus is still dead, everything you and I fear at some point will get to us. Will corner us in. And no one's coming for us. That what you fear will eventually one day actually come and take everything that you gave meaning to in your life. It's why you don't need to be a Christian to be courageous, right? You cannot believe in God, face all that down, and that takes, that takes a lot of courage. But again, it doesn't, doesn't explain my heart, doesn't explain my longings, doesn't explain the way I look at this world and the things that I fear. Right, why do we as humans keep writing stories about overcoming our fears and staring them down in the face of courage and watching them go away and be destroyed? Right, why does J.K. Rowling at the end of Harry Potter make 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the verse she puts on Harry's parents' grave? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Because that whole story is about the fear of losing your parents. And J.K.'s just hinting there. There's a story where death really is defeated, it really is destroyed, and everything you lost is given back. Where everything broken is made right. It's why we keep telling those stories. It's why the Christian story should fill us, if you're a Christian, with the unique courage to face your fears and to face your death. Right? The Christian shouldn't be like me. Right, in that conversation with my friend, just trying to keep my head in the sand. Let's not talk about it. Let's not, let's not bring it up. It might happen. No jinx. Christians, listen, we can be honest. It's going to happen. There are real enemies in this world. Some of us in this room, we know that to be true in profound ways that are affecting your life in this moment here and now. So I would just ask, do you have a meaning in life that lets you both stare down your fears and also give you hope they've been overcome. Right? As Christians, we should both be filled with courage. Our fears, they're there. But also hope. They won't get to us. Jesus defeated them and is defeating them. That if the message of Christianity says anything to you and I, whether you're a Christian or you're not, it says to all of us, courage, dear hearts, for he lives. And so can you. So can I. Because my death is not the end and my fears are not in charge. But it's not just that. It's also my, my failures don't have the last word. Now, I love, I love spring. I love fresh starts. It's why I love spring so much. It's also why I love opening day for baseball season, which is today. If you weren't aware, last service people were like, I don't care for baseball, whatever. But ba- today's opening day. Be, be excited. It's a good day. It's a fresh start. Right, and especially as a Cubs fan, um, if you're not aware of this, the Cubs have been losing for 107 years, um, have not won the World Series in a very long time. And so every year for 107 years, Cubs fans have woken up on this morning and said, maybe this year. Right? It's hope. To be human is to hope. And, and to show just how ridiculous we can be hopers from, from time to time, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Back to the Future is set, part of it's set in 2015. And in 2015, in Back to the Future, the Cubs won the World Series. Right? If you don't believe me, here's a picture from the movie. Right? Way to go, Cubbies. You did it. And I don't know why, but I legitimately think this somehow might mean the Cubs are more likely to win this year. I'm pathetic, right? Because I'm a human being. We hope in anything. To be human is to hope. But the greatest threat to my hope, it's not my death. It's not my fears. It's me. 
Now, I don't know if, if you're like me, you've gotten to the point in your life where you realize you just have this incredible ability to mess up the people around you, the relationships that are most dear to you. That we as human beings have this incredible capacity to mess things up. And if I try to build my meaning in life without God as a daily part of who I am, then there will come a moment when my, my failures, my, my mess-ups are so great, I won't be able to put back whatever it is I broke back together. It'll be too late. I love the way Francis Spufford, a British author, writes about the capacity you and I have to mess things up. Here's what he says. This is what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident. Our passive role is agents of entropy. It's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here including moods, promises, relationships we care about, and our own well-being and other people's, as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big, fat scratch. That I can be truly kind is truly cruel. I can be truly loving as well as taking pleasure in seeing others fall. And all of us, unless you just have incredible capacity to deny reality, all of us have this in us. All of us. And there will come a moment in your life when you'll break something and it'll be your fault and you won't be able to put it back together. And in fact, Christianity is saying that moment has already happened. And you may not know it yet, but your life is already falling apart. You're already unraveling. The signs and the evidence, it's there. The fears, your inevitable death, it's all there. It's all obvious. Your life is unraveling. Right? You look in the mirror, right? It's unraveling. That all of our lives, like every life, will end in the same Place. And that's why Paul has this theme woven throughout 1 Corinthians 15. He uses a word we don't use anymore. It's, it's kind of an old-fashioned word. It's a word that's deeply important to the Christian story. That we're all sinners. And Paul says this about why Jesus came. For I delivered to you as of, of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That this incredible capacity I have and you have to mess things up, Christ died for that. He died for me. He died for you. And that everything you've ever done to mess your life up, that's why Christ came. So that he could come and stand in that place of, of abandonment, of frustration, of chaos and rejection. Christ came to stand in that place instead of you. But it's not just that. That Paul says, it's not just, listen, you, you mess everything up and I guess God will let you in. No, what Paul says is because Jesus didn't just die for your sins. He also resurrected into new life so that you could have new life. That's what he says in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And Paul's not just saying you can go to heaven one day when you die. No, he means alive right here, right now. For the, the meaning and the richness you find in life to have more meaning and more richness that Christ has taken away the curse, away death that you might live. A life of courage and meaning right here and now. That your death will not take from you. That your fears will not take from you. That your failures will not take from you. Jesus proved that 2,000 years ago when his life overcame all of that and he broke out of that tomb. 
Our death, our fears, our failures are nothing to the life Jesus has. So do you have his life, his courage, his meaning? But can you have meaning in life without God? Yes. No. Because even the things you give your greatest joy to, the greatest things that give you meaning, don't they point beyond themselves? At least they do for me. That our desires, our loves, our relationships for meaning, our desires are too strong for this place. A place whose fear, whose death, whose failures often snuff out the greatest things we do. My desires are too strong for this place. Which might suggest there's another place. That what C.S. Lewis describes in what I think is his best book, Till We Have Faces, that there one of the characters said this. It says, when I was happiest, I longed most. And because it was beautiful, it always set me longing, always longing. Somewhere else, there must be more of it. Now, what at best explains the longings of your life, the meaning you give your life to, that this is it, this is all you have, or somewhere else there's more of it? It's why I can sort of walk both sides of the fence. I can say as a Christian, you need God for meaning, and also say you don't. That's why one of my favorite songs is U2's song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, written by Christians who say, I still, in this world, I don't have what I long for. I wasn't made for this place. And that can lead you in one of two directions, right? It can lead you to say that maybe there's nothing more, and this is it, and we just have to love what we have. Or maybe there's somewhere else, there's, there's more of it. And that's the message of Christianity. That that world broke into ours 2,000 years ago when Jesus went to his cross and into his tomb and came out three days later. To tell us once and for all, my death is not the end. My fears do not rule over me and my failures will never have the last word. He lives. And so can I. And so can you. Let's pray.